Hello, and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. So we come together again to continue our conversation, our dialogue, our journey as we move forward one step at a time on our quest to achieving unconditional, ultimate, unshakable happiness. I admit you've heard this from me so many times by now. In fact, to some, it may even begin to feel that, oh, Banth is just going on about it again. Ultimate happiness, unconditional happiness, never-ending, unshakable, this, that and the other. Is that even possible? We've been listening to almost 20 odd talks by the Bhante now and I don't seem to have moved forward any bit. Some of you might feel. Others may be experiencing an internal transformation, at least the beginning of it. Yet others may have begun to experience what it is that I've been talking to you about. And this is quite normal. We all have a moment. There's a time. There's a place. When it all starts to make sense. It happened for me. And it has happened for many others. And it will happen for everyone. It's just a matter of time. But it's not just time. There are a few things that we need to do to ensure that it does happen. And what you're doing right now is part of that. The other part, of course, is the other thing that I keep drumming on about, which you know, is to apply whatever you take away from here in the lab of your life. Now, there is one other very important component which I haven't mentioned a lot about in the talks as yet. But I will come to that as we move forward at some point. And there's a reason why I haven't mentioned that all that much as yet. You see, because I feel that in this series of talks, I feel that I only ought to share with you something that I can prove. Something that I can show you the logic behind. Something that is scientific. Something that makes sense to you because you see the inner workings of it. I'm not a big fan of faith just for the sake of it or for the namesake. There's a place for that, I'm sure, in every religion. And I'm not completely rejecting or denying that, or that it does not have a place. There's a place for that. But I think for true realization, and what we believe is enlightenment, which is the awakening of oneself, it has to happen 
through profound wisdom, through insight. And that is an internal transformation when you start to see how everything works and hangs together. It cannot happen by faith alone. Again, I will be the first to admit, it has its place. Belief, it has its place. But conviction is what we are after here. You see, at no point during these talks did I ask you to offer flowers to the Buddha, incense, oil lamps, or make any other kind of offering to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, or even to the Sangha. Now I'm sure there are some among you who are very devoted to the Noble Triple Gem, and you make your offerings as and when you can. But I think it's one to encourage you to do it, but another to help you understand the logic behind it and then show you why the Buddha encouraged people to engage in such activities once you have understood rhyme and reason behind it. Because then you don't need any more convincing. And then you do it not because someone else tells you or asks you. You do it out of your own accord. You do it because you believe it is the right thing to do. You believe that it will help you. It will help you on your journey. After all, we know why we do anything and everything. That goal, that aim has not changed one bit. Even in these talks, we are still after the same goal that we were before we started listening to these talks. Happiness. It's just that we now understand that that happiness which we were going after in pursuit of prior to listening to these talks now I can't say I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but I hope you'll allow me to take the liberty of saying out loud that I believe that for most of you, you will have begun to realize that that happiness was something very evasive. Whereas now you're beginning to see, hopefully, gradually that there must be a kind of happiness which can be ours to keep, which is unconditional, which is unshakable. Now, you see, that third component is in fact something called merits. You may have heard this word being tossed around a bit, particularly in Buddhist circles, but it is also done in pretty much every other religion, teaching, philosophy. Even people who are atheists, or they have no religion, no faith, they still engage in meritorious deeds. Perhaps not because they believe that there is any meritorious power in it, but simply because it makes them feel good. Or perhaps because they feel a duty to give something back. This process of giving something back 
whatever it might be, could be a glass of water, could be something much, much bigger than that. Maybe your life itself, which is the ultimate giving, isn't it? You know, anything in and between these two ends of the spectrum is, is giving. This is all part of charity. It's all part of becoming someone who is happy unconditionally. Now, I know that as I say these words, there will be some among you who will begin to have these questions pop up in your mind. But, 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 Pante, what's the connection? How can giving something make me happy? You know that giving something to people you love, people you care about, makes you happy because you like to see them happy and that makes you happy in turn. But I remember last week, Bhante, you talked to us about giving without expecting anything in return. How does that make someone happy? Is it even possible not to expect anything in return? And you said that was the nature of an arahant. But how does one even get there? All these questions. So you see, whilst I will put it out there, engaging in as many merits as possible is going to help you. And while I'd love for you to be engaging in such meritorious deeds, whenever and wherever you get a chance to do so, I'm not going to prescribe it, not just yet anyway. I will do, pretty soon, once I've explained to you how it's going to help you achieve ultimate happiness. Because after all, everything and anything we talk about in this series of talks has to align with its title, doesn't it? Because that's what you signed up for. That's what you subscribed to. That's why you're sat here today, waiting to hear these words. What does Bhante have to say to us today? That'll help me achieve ultimate happiness. Because, no surprise, we are on the path, the Buddha's path, the Buddha's guide to achieving ultimate happiness. Without any further ado, let us take another step forward on this journey today. We have a lot of ground to cover. I did mention to you that last week there was a pretty interesting question. I read it out to you and we started to go through some of the details, but I did admit that I hadn't done justice to the question. And I think it's because it's such a deep and profound question that there's so much scope to cover, to go through, that you know, I think it's probably going to take us a few episodes to discuss the ins and outs of it. But we've got to start somewhere. And I think, you know, you've been really good and you've been following these talks up until now. You've been very engaged. And we know for a fact that there are some regulars who come along and don't miss a single episode. And I think, you know, if you've followed that all this while, these talks, these episodes, then you'll have come to a level of understanding which I think is fitting, at which point I can start talking to you, sharing with you some of the really interesting nitty-gritty stuff. 
the science behind the workings of the mind, how the mind functions, the mechanism of it, the dynamics of it, oh, it's super interesting. I'm sure you'd love to hear some of that. So, let's get started then. Before we do so, as we always do, let us take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely virtuous one, the infinitely compassionate one, the wise one, the most noble one, the magnificent one, the infinitely merciful one. This is none other than the Supreme Buddha we speak of. Let us take a moment to do that and continue our discussion. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Let's revisit the question from last week. There were two questions. The end goal of becoming an Arahant. I'm paraphrasing it a bit. Is it to be like an emotionless robot that just does duties and tasks? What is a place for emotion? If Arahanthood is perfect sainthood, if that is the end goal, and if emotion has no place in the mind of an Arahant, if to an Arahant, his child from when he was a lay person, someone else's child, an orphan child, a disabled child, any child means and feels the same, then I think that is a good indicator that emotion has very little place in the mind of an Arahant. It's important to understand that being compassionate towards someone is different to being emotionful or emotional about someone. You see, we do know, don't we, that the Buddha is considered the fountain of compassion. He is the fountain of loving kindness. He is the spring, the eternal spring of mercy and equanimity. The four noble abodes. Now, the Buddha is an Arahant. Well, he was the first Arahant in his ministry. But we know that the Buddha spent his entire lifetime spreading the Dharma, helping people to achieve enlightenment, freeing innocent souls from suffering. Now, if he had no compassion, if he had no kindness, and if he was not gentle to a broken heart, if he did not consider it his duty to heal wounded souls, then would you call him Buddha? 
When you hear the word Buddha, what sort of things come to your mind? It is exactly the opposite of the above, isn't it? Someone who is full of compassion, infinite kindness, infinite mercy, gentleness, loving kindness, and a whole bunch of other really positive, caring things. But he was an arahant. So, therefore, if we put all of those things and emotion into the same basket, then we must understand that something's not quite right. Because I think, you know, when a question like this is asked, often we refer to emotion as emotions that we feel as people who are not arahants. Some emotions like anger or love, desire even, jealousy, hatred, ego. Just to give a few examples. These are emotions. There are a whole host of emotions which I'm sure you're familiar with. And I agree that you will feel that it's impossible to think of an arahant being emotional. And this is why you have asked this question. Someone can be dutiful, not beautiful, I meant dutiful, as in conscious of one's duty, their duty of care, and they can be kind and gentle, compassionate, and yet still not be emotional. What is emotion then? I like to think of emotion as something that shakes you on the inside. There must be a reason why emotion has the word motion in it. I kind of like to think of it as, you know, when I'm in motion, then I'm emotional. So that is, you're shaking on the inside. There is some motion. But we know that an arahant is an unshakable character. Nothing can face him. No amount of adversity. Praise, honor, respect, or the entire opposites of that. Disrespect, discredit, dishonor, blame, loss. None of these things can shake him because he has achieved unconditional happiness. So now you must start to see the connection, why it is that we are after unconditional happiness. When do you feel emotional? Ask yourself this question. Think about the last time you felt emotional. It would have either been a time when something you really liked happened or something you really disliked happened. Am I right? Do you remember the last time you were emotional? When was it? Perhaps when someone you loved gave you a hug 
showed you affection, embraced you, and you felt emotional. Yeah? So that's something you liked, really. And it happened. Or it might have been when you got some bad news. Maybe a loss of a loved one. Perhaps a missed opportunity. And that took away your cool. Again, that was a time when you felt emotional. You don't feel emotional when things that are not quite on either side of this scale happens. Do you? So something happens and, you know, let's say it's raining. Now, of course, I don't mean a rain when you've been waiting for it to rain for years or months or weeks and it starts to rain and you go, thank God it's begun to rain. Like we've had some time like that at the monastery recently. We've not had much rain over the last few weeks and it just has just begun to rain. So we are quite grateful for that. You know, you know, say just say you're walking under a tree and you're walking under an apple tree. An apple drops onto the ground. Unless you're Sir Isaac Newton, you're probably not going to feel all that emotional about that. It's just another incident. It's just a happening. It's not something that you've been waiting for. Not something you were eagerly awaiting the, its incidence. Or it's not something you were hoping would never happen to you. You were trying to avoid or prevent from happening. And therefore something you dislike. So again, my point being that whenever we are emotional, if only you go into your lab of life, which is our favorite place to be, I know, if only you dip into your lab of life, you realize that emotion has to do, has everything to do with your likes and dislikes. Just imagine mentally, if you were able to remove all your likes and dislikes, would you be emotional? Would there be any place for emotion? As I say, go back and think to yourself, when was the last time you were emotional? When were some of the times you remember being emotional? Perhaps you were waiting at the airport for a friend and you haven't seen for a long time. You see them coming through the arrivals gate and you feel emotional. Tears start flowing down your cheeks or your eyes get welled up. That's emotion. Right? Or you're driving down the street and someone cuts in front of you. Again, that's emotion. Anger. On both these type of events, you know there's something in common. What is that? There's attachment, isn't there? Because we understand that the only time one can experience pleasure or displeasure is when there is attachment. We've gone through this stuff over and over again. So by now, the moment I say these things out loud, the pieces of the puzzle will start falling into place, I'm sure. We know because it's attachment that gives rise to wanting. Yeah? And that's what creates this vexation in the mind. And when the mind finally achieves that which there was an attachment for, it is relieved of vexation, 
and it is that vexation that one experiences as pleasure. So this is very logical. It's entirely science, at least scientific. I'm not sure you're going to find it in the scientist journals, but at least this is scientific. This has to be scientific. It's very logical. It's very empirical. So, emotion has everything to do with attachment. Now, if we understand that an arahant is someone who is free of attachment, zero, none whatsoever, no attachment in, it, in their mind, how would an arahant even be emotional? Would it be even possible? But, to be compassionate, how much attachment does that require? To be kind, how much attachment does that require? What is it to be kind? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be compassionate? What does it mean to be merciful? What do you think? We speak of loving kindness all the time, don't we? There's loving kindness meditation, there's loving kindness chanting, right? It's just spoken about around the block all day and night. And it's a very common thing, you know, in Buddhism and Buddhist religions and uh, all, all kinds of traditions. Loving kindness is mentioned all the time. So, but what is loving kindness? Is it not when you can do something for someone else? something good to someone else with that intention, intention to do good to others but expecting nothing in return. Because if you expect something in return, now again, emotion comes in. Why? Because if it happens, again, you're in motion. If it doesn't happen, well, yet again, you're in motion. By in motion, I mean you're shaken. It can leave you elated or it can leave you a complete wreck. Yes or no? When you have expectations, either one of these two things can happen or anything in between. But compassion, loving kindness, mercy, equanimity, these are things that are not based in attachment. I mean, in its purest form. There are versions of this which are tainted by attachment and this is what we see most of the time. So a mother's love for, its for her child, it, would be, it wouldn't be right for us to say is not tainted by attachment because we do know that it is. A mother loves her child. She does not love other children the same way that she does her child. So when something becomes yours, when something becomes mine, when something belongs to someone, then that is clearly attachment, isn't it? Now I'm not saying that a mother's love is bad or evil. Clearly not. It's a wonderful thing. But what I'm saying is, it is not appropriate for us to say that it is untainted. It is tainted in attachment. Therefore, it is not the same thing as the loving kindness felt by an arahant or exercised by an arahant. 
attachment we know is down to interpretation of value. We've discussed this. What is true value? In a previous talk, we went through this. Attachment is based in value. When you value something, that's when you are attached to it. When you don't value something, then you're not attached to it. Remember I gave you the example of when my, in my lay time, I, we got a gift for a little kid and instead of playing with a toy, he found it really exciting and interesting to play with a bit of cello tape that was stuck to the box and the gift wrap. So the kid was not happy to see the toy car, which cost a lot of money back then, whereas instead he was happy to be playing with the bit of cello tape. As I said, had we known that earlier, we would have gotten him a bit of cello tape instead of buying him that expensive toy. But it's, it comes down to value, and because value is not something intrinsic, it is very subjective. And we've proved this, right? Everything I've shared with you, I've been proving to you along the way, and I hope you've been contemplating on those principles and taking your time to absorb them and analyze them and giving yourself the opportunity to come on board along the way. What is one good evidence that value is not intrinsic? Come on, what do you think? One solid piece of evidence that value is not intrinsic. By intrinsic, I mean it's not part of the object. It's not part of the experience or the person that one would value. A really simple example would be, how would commerce work? How would trade work if value were intrinsic? You would not be able to walk up to a car salesman and go, here's my money, can I have that car please? If value was something intrinsic, you would not be able to trade money for car or anything for that matter. You won't even be able to go and get your groceries from the shop. How so? Come on, you should remember now. How so? How so? Well, when someone parts with their goods for your money, are they not of the belief that what they're parting with is of lesser value than what you have to give them? Which do they want more? The goods or your money? If they're, if they're the storekeeper? They want your money more than the goods. Why? Because they value your money more than the goods. That's why they give you the goods and they get your money. Whereas you, on the other hand, you are willing to part with your money for the goods. Meaning, well, value is not intrinsic. If value were intrinsic, then you would not be able to make that trade. A shopkeeper would never sell his goods. He would never sell his merchandise. It's only because you value something, someone else values something else, now you can exchange the two. See? That's a perfect piece of evidence that value is not intrinsic. However, when we think that value is intrinsic, then we attach ourselves to these things. It could be an object, it could be a person, it could be an experience whatever the case might be. And once you do that, 
Now, of course, when there's attachment, what comes next? We know this. Wanting comes next. Now you want it. And when you are in a state of wanting, now of course the mind goes into a state of vexation. And when the mind is in a state of vexation, now we know either it will go after that which it believes is a source of pleasure, and that is what we see people doing all day long, acquiring what they desire, ever hopeful that that which they acquire is going to be the source of their happiness, or in the event that they are unable to do that, either by hook or by crook, then actually, quite sadly, quite disappointingly, what we see is people actually go crazy. No, it's true. Have you ever wondered why people go insane? Just think about it. Most people, the reason they go insane, the reason they lose their sanity, and you'll forgive me for using this term quite loosely, the reason they go mad is because they wanted something pretty bad and they realized that there was absolutely no hope of getting it. Wouldn't you agree? There are some people who lose their loved ones and it's such a shock to their entire system that they go insane because they just can't cope with the fact that they have lost someone. The reason for this is because they believe that that which they lost or the person that they lost was their source of happiness. What did they know or what did they not know that you and I know now? They didn't know that happiness was not something that the other person would give. Pleasure is something that is achieved from relief from vexation. If only they knew that. Right? If only they knew that, they would not have gone into that state of shock. They would not have gone insane. Why? Because the moment you understand this, the moment you understand that no object in this world can ever give you happiness, your attachment towards it fades away and then dies. So I'm not saying it happens instantly or spontaneously. It'll happen over a period of time, as I'm sure it must have begun to happen for you, or at least for most of you. It'll fade away and it'll die. Is that a bad thing? Is that a terrible thing? Well, listen. What if it doesn't happen? The consequences of attachment are devastating, aren't they? Have you seen people crying, weeping, moaning, lamenting, tearing their hair out, beating their chests up, cursing themselves just because they've lost someone they love? I say just because, but, you know, for them, it was earth-shattering. Terrible. 
Now, it's one thing for us to be sympathetic towards Zen, and I'm not saying I'm not. I am. But it is because of sympathy, or rather even empathy, and kindness, compassion, mercy, that I feel the answer that we need to offer them is not simply a pat on the back to heal a wounded soul or a shoulder to cry on, to ease them and to appease them. I feel that there's a lot more that can be done because what's stopping them from going through that terrible experience again? A mother who's got, a, who's got one son, one child, if something were to happen to him, you know what she's going to go through. Now imagine if she had three children, four, five, six children. How many times over and over and over is she going to have to go through this devastating experience? I'm not necessarily talking about death. You know, there are terrible things that could happen even before that. A child could get abducted. A serious accident. And a child could be left without a limb. A child could be left disabled. Or it could contract a disease, sometimes something fatal. And in all these situations, a mother is going to have to suffer. She brought these children into the world, into her world, because she thought they were her bundle of joy. They thought this is the way to be happy. Yeah, poor mother, innocent. She doesn't know any better and she thinks that is her source of happiness. So she brings her children into this world. I'm not saying that's wrong or it's bad or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, if we feel that we have to, we care about mothers who go through the painful experience of bringing a child into this world and bringing them up and teaching them, caring for them, right? I think if we if we feel that we are we have a duty towards mothers who are really good mothers and they do a lot to shape their children up into the good law-abiding citizens of a nation and then who go on to develop the nations the countries and the world that we live in so that we can all have a better tomorrow then I think we have a duty towards them so that they don't have to suffer because it's not the child that makes them suffer. Oh no. Because it's not the child that makes them happy. Only something that can make you happy is something that can make you suffer. And in both cases you understand now that it is, it is attachment. If, it, if attachment can make you happy, then attachment will make you suffer. Does attachment make you happy? Well, in a roundabout way it does. How so? Attachment leads to wanting, leads to vexation, and then relief from vexation makes you happy. This is pleasure I'm talking about. But it's the same thing that has made you suffer. But it's not children that do this. It's nothing like that, nothing external, no person, nothing, no divine in intervention, no human, no animal no beast, no material object 
can make you happy or unhappy. Because then, you know, it would all be controlled by the outside world. But you know that an arahant is not like that. He is content, blissful, all on his own accord. Nothing can shake him. If it's attachment that causes unhappiness, if it's attachment that causes despair and suffering, then nothing else does. Now, so an an arahant is someone who has cleansed their mind of all attachment. This is why last week when we talked about this, I invited you to think about who you are before we try and get an answer to who an arahant is. Because who an arahant is might be a tough nut to crack. Until we get there. Now it's like talking to you about the destination before we get there. I myself haven't got there. So I can't tell you exactly what it's like, but I've got a good idea. And I'm trying to share with you what that looks like, but actually more so, it is one's understanding of who they are in the state they're in that really helps them to get to where they need to be. Let me put it this way. Imagine you're visiting a friend who you've never visited before, so you've never gone to their place, and Let's just imagine for a moment there's no such thing as a navigator where you can just punch in their postcode and then select their door number and then, you know, Jane, good old Jane tells you this is how you need to get there, right? No. Let's imagine for a moment that you've got to take instructions from your friend. He's going to give you a call or you can call him from time to time. Once you describe your whereabouts, then he'll know where you are and then he'll tell you, right, okay, so if if that's where you are, then... In a hundred yards, you'll come across a roundabout and then take the second exit. And then once you've done that, give me another call. Right? So you see, if you consider this example for a a second or this anecdote, you realize that what helps your friend tell you where to get to or what you need to do to get your destination is where you are right now. Do you agree? What piece of information does your friend need to tell you what to do to get you to where he is? What one one piece of information is most important? Is it the time of day? Is it? Is it which day of the week it is? Is it? None of these. What's the one piece of information that is most crucial for someone on the other end of the phone who you're trying to get to to explain to you, to give you instructions on how to get to that destination from where you are? What one piece of information do you need to give them? Of course, it's where you are right now. And if you don't know the name of the place, then you're just going to have to describe where you are. So you might say, well, where I am, I can see a bridge a few hundred yards ahead of me. 
There's also a large oak tree just uh, to the left. Oh, and by the way, there's a, there's a statue of someone on the right-hand side, on the other side of the street. And, oh, and there's, there's this uh, shopping mall. I can see a bit further from where I am. And you explain, you describe where you are. These descriptions will help your friend figure exactly where you are, if they're familiar with this place that you are. And then from there on, your friend's going to say, ah, right, I know where that is. So please don't take the bridge, but take the, 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 the road just underneath it. And then continue your journey, whatever. So they can give you instructions, clear instructions to get to the destination from where you are, if you can describe where you are. Clearly. Now the same principle applies here. Yes, it is an arahant that we all want to try and become. Someone who is compassionate, someone who has an abundance of loving kindness, someone who is merciful. But these things with an untainted with attachment. Why? Well, because then you can do stuff for others. You can do things for others without being shaken on the inside, without any motion on the inside. You can be emotionless. Now, this, this is the problem that we have, of course. You know, when you say someone's emotionless, it just sounds like, you know, they're heartless, doesn't it? You say, oh, that guy, he's, he's so emotionless. He, you know, you can't even talk to the guy. He doesn't engage with us. He's just, he doesn't show any emotion. He's even human. You know, people criticize that sort of thing. You'll be barking up the wrong tree one day if you say the same about an arahant. Because, to be fair, an arahant is emotionless if you consider emotion to be those feelings that one goes through when they are attached to things. If that is the case, then yes, an arahant is emotionless. But however, if by emotion you, you, you speak or you refer to loving kindness, compassion, mercy, and the quality of being equanimous, unshakable, and yet doing everything in their power to do good and justice and do great things to help others, alleviate them from suffering as best they can, but unshakable on the inside, meaning expecting absolutely nothing in return. If you say that is your definition of emotion, then I don't know anyone who is more emotional than an arahant. It just depends on what your definition is. But to get there, what's more important for us to understand, what is, I suppose, even more useful and easier for us to understand, and actually what is more important for us to understand is who we are ourselves. Because it is our understanding of who we are that will help us get to who they are. Now, you may not immediately understand the, the gravity of what I've just explained there, but I'm sure you will over the course of our discussions and our, and our, and our talks into the future. Because, you see, 
Remember we talked about the Four Noble Truths and right at the beginning of this series of talks I introduced Buddhist philosophy to you and I said Buddhism is not about letting go. Remember? I explained to you that Buddhism is about realization. It's about understanding. Perhaps I didn't spend a great deal of time back there explaining to you what it is that we need to understand. It's about realization, but what? Now I can start to shun some light on that because we've come all this way. And I, you know, I did say, I can't share everything with you right from the word go. You know, it's going to take us a while to build up our speed, you know, to pick up a few things along the way, to become skilled in the in the little things that we we learn along the way. And, you know, you're going to go practice in your lab of life and then you're going to learn from that. Questions are going to come up and we're going to discuss some of them. Right? So so now you're ready for, for some of this. I, I've been waiting for it. Because I've got so much to share with you. I just, you know, I'd love to be able to give it all in one go, but, you know, it's not the right or sensible or responsible thing to do. Because as my teachers did with me, they only fed me what I could swallow. And that is why today I've been able to come along, come this far. So, before I lose track, I explained to you that Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy is to realize, to understand. Understand what exactly? Realize what exactly? It's not to realize an arahant. Because that is the end result. It is to realize who you are. This might sound absurd to some. It might sound, you know, what meaning is there in that bhante? I understand who I am. My name is Jack. My name is Tom. My name is Sandy. My name is Jane. I know who I am. I'm a mother. I'm 45 years of age. I've got three kids. I've got a husband. I do this job. What are you talking about? I understand who I am. On the contrary, you haven't even begun to understand who you are yet. What you've just said are a bunch of things that other people have said you are. No. You just said your name is Jane, right? How do you know this? Yeah, how, how do you know this? Because I know. No, you can't, you can't give me that. Did you always know that you were Jane? Always? Was there never a time in your life where you learned that you were Jane? Or that you were called Jane? You don't remember going up to your mother, your father, whoever, and asking, What's my name? Oh, what's my... Sir, what's a what's a surname? It says, "What put in your surname? What's a surname, mother? Mummy, what's a surname? Mummy, what's my name? Mummy, what's your name?" I remember to this day asking my parents what their surname was, even their names, because I knew them as mum and dad, and I thought that was their name. I remember to this day at school they asked me, "What are your parents' names?" I say, "Mum and dad." Uh, no, that's not their name. That's what you call them. So I had to go and make sure that I 
learn their names because I was pretty embarrassed. Everywhere, all, all my other friends knew what their parents were called and I didn't. I just knew them as mum and dad. Or at least the Sinhala, the Sinhalese version of mum and dad. So you say your name's Jane. Yeah? Are you sure? How do you know this? How do you know that your name is Jane? Someone told you so, right? <laughs> well, so who are you then? No, no, don't give me Jane. Jane is who someone else has said you are. I'm asking you, who are you? Mm, okay, well, I'm a mother. Oh, you say, right, I, I, I'm a teacher. I'll come to mother in a moment. I, I'm a teacher, you say. Really? Says who? Well, I'm a teacher, Bhante. I mean, no one has to say that. Are you sure? Do you remember working to becoming a teacher? Not working as a teacher, but working to become a teacher? So, you know, perhaps when you were um, in secondary school, you thought, mm, you know what, when I grow up, I want to become a teacher. And then you went and spoke to your mentors. You spoke to other teachers at school. And you talk, spoke to your friends. You spoke to your parents and asked them, how does one become a teacher? What was this question? How does one become a teacher? Let me rephrase this question, if, you, if, you, if you're all right with that. The question you would have asked was, how do you become a teacher? But let me paraphrase this question. There are a bunch of things that when you do them in the right order, in, in a prescribed order, to a prescribed degree, by degree I mean a level, then society, meaning other people, will start calling you a teacher and they'll even give you a piece of paper on which it'll say, henceforth, you are a teacher. So tell me, that being the case, are you a teacher or you think you are a teacher because other people have said so? Let's just, say, let's just say, right, when you were in, in secondary school, there were certain things you had to do to become a teacher, right? Let's say there were five things you had to do be, to, be, to become a teacher from that point on. And let's say, you know, you went on to um, college and then you went to, to do your higher education and but there were some more exams that you had to do, some more training you had to do to become a teacher. But right, somewhere down the line, they changed the system and they said, right, Instead of all, instead of the five things, we've added another two, and now there are in altogether seven things you have to do to become a teacher. I'm asking you this question: Who's calling the shots? To become a teacher now, you have to do not five but seven things, two additional things. Again, I need you to think about this from another perspective. I know this is going to be challenging because you've always thought of you as the person who is in your profession. Someone asks you, what do you do? Say, I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. Who are you? I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. I'm a hairdresser. You'll say, I'm a chef. I'm a waiter. I'm a fireman. Yeah? I'm going to have to ask you, says who? Says who? 
says other people, right? That's why they can somehow, someday, tell you that you are not a teacher anymore. The very people that said, from now on you, you'll be called a teacher, can also come and come around and say another day, you know what, from now on, you're not a teacher. We've interdicted you. That's it, scrap your license. You are no longer a, 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 a teacher. You are no longer a doctor. They can do that, can't they? No, I don't mean whether that's fair or unfair. What I'm saying is, don't take the moral question or the fair, unfair question into, into this conversation. What I'm saying is, the very people that said you are a teacher, you're a doctor, you're an engineer, can come back to you and say, you are not any longer. Meaning, meaning, that profession was never what defined you. Was it? It was simply part of the tapestry. It was not you. You said you are Jane, but you now admit that it's other people who called you Jane, so you actually learned from other people, from other people, whoever, from other people, that you are Jane. You learned from other people that you are a teacher. Because first you learned, what is it that I need to do so that other people start calling me a teacher? And then you did them, and now other people call you a teacher. Yeah, that, that, that's the drill. Okay, let's take your age, for instance. Right, you say, I'm 45 years of age. Says who? Oh no, Bante, but come on. That is time. Surely, you know, that time waits for no one. You know, don't you know any of this stuff? You know, no one calls the shots when it comes to time. Really? Really? Think about it for a second. First, second, pardon the pun. But think about it. Now, who's decided that you are 45 years of age? Again, I know you'll be asking, what are you talking about, Bande? I'm 45 years of age. I've lived on this planet for 45 years. No one said I'm 45. I know I'm 45. Are you questioning if I was born on the day that it says on my birth certificate? Is that what you're questioning? Oh, no, 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 no. Answer this question for me, please. Why are you 45 and not 46? Duh, Bante, because I was not born that year to be 46. I was not born a year before I did. That's why I'm not 46. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, this number, 45, right? Didn't someone decide on your behalf that it was after this many days you'd have a year? And it's after this many days, it would be called a month. And it's after this many months, it would be a year. So how seconds make up minutes and minutes make up hours and hours make up days and they make up weeks and weeks make up months and months make up years. You don't, are, you, are you telling me that this is not all a convention? Isn't that how you can have daylight saving time? Isn't that how you can have leap years? Is it not all a convention? I mean, who decided that? Who decided that one day on its around its axis was a day and one time round the sun was a year? 
Because if you were lived on another planet, you wouldn't be 45 today, would you? See? If you lived on a planet closer to the sun, then you'd age faster. If you live on a planet further away from the sun, you'd age slower. If your age was determined by the number of cycles around the sun. So then again, if where you live determines what your age is, <laughs> again, is that part of you? Or is that part of who you are? Or is that part of a convention? It's all a conventional construct, isn't it? Think about it. So my question is, who are you? Oh, oh, yes, yes, I don't forget the mother part. So you're a mother, right? You sure? Because last time I asked someone, they said, no, actually, you are, or the, you were their wife, or you were their daughter. When I asked them, they didn't say that you were their mother. Yeah, but, they, but you asked the wrong person. Proves my point. You're telling me you asked the wrong person. Bhante, you should have asked my kids. They would have said that I'm their mother. Well, then the fact that you're a mother me is completely subjective, isn't it? Ask this person and they'll tell you that I'm a mother. Ask that person, they'll tell you that I'm their daughter. Ask this person and they're going to tell you that I'm their wife. So other people decide who you are. Does that mean, doesn't that tell you in big, bold block letters that it is not you, but what other people think or believe you are? So this leaves us with the question, who are you? I'm not interested in what other people think you are or who other people think you are. I'm asking you, put all that to a side, right? Scrap all that. Who are you? Give me an answer that is objective, not subjective. So now you're going to have to throw out Jane, throw Jane out the window, not literally, your name. You're going to have to throw out your age out the window. You're going to have to throw your profession out the window. You're going to have to throw out your titles. You know, you could say, I'm a landowner. Yeah? How much land do you own? Well, the wise among you will already have figured where I'm going with this. How much land do you own? Well, Bhante, if you should ask, you know, I own a hundred acres of land. I'm what they call an aristocrat. Oh, all right, all right, all right. A hundred acres of land, yeah? Says who? Well, yeah, I've got the deeds. I've got the title deeds to prove it. Well, yeah, well, who gave you the title deeds? Well, you know, it's the land registry or whoever. They gave me the title deeds. So someone says that you own a hundred acres of land. No, but I do own it, Bhante. What are you talking about? I do own it. Only because someone else agrees that you own it. Why do people get into quarrels and arguments and legal battles about land ownership? You know, go to the courts and you'll find probably 
well over 90% of court cases are probably to do with land ownership because people just can't agree on who owns which bit of the which side of the fence why because you know one person says this is your part the other person de- denies they disagree and that's why you have to go to court so you want them to agree that this is your land don't you meaning you want confirmation from someone else you want to, unanimously you want people to agree that you are the landowner meaning yet again are you a landowner or do other people say you are one and therefore you have come to learn that you are one so i leave you with a question who are you this is going to be a bit of a bold task but i think you know i i want you to flex your intellectual muscles right i'll i'll give you a whole week how about that to think about it right if it gets really painful you know take a couple of paracetamols i'm sure you'll be fine i'm just kidding right but i want you to take your time and think about it who are you i'm not asking about who other people believe you are so anytime you come up with something like that ask yourself is this me or is this someone else thinks who i am in fact one way you could test it is is this deniable is this debatable the fact that you know whatever you come up with let's say you say i'm a doctor right can someone take it away from me or can someone disagree with me and then i'm no longer a doctor right for instance if you lived in the united kingdom the general medical council deti- decides whether you're a doctor or not so the the same people who give you the license to operate as a doctor are the same people can they can take it away from you meaning it's not you it's just something you're temporarily allowed to call yourself so it's not you then who are you intrinsically who are you by definition not temporarily who are you is not my question who are you i want you to think about this take some time think about it contemplate go into your lab i think you'll be spending quite a bit of time this this week in the lab so you know book it out spend some quality time in there ask yourself who are you i'll help you out next week right, so i'm not going to leave you in the lurch but you know i think you're a very intelligent very intellectual people and so i like to give you uh, something to chew on okay i'm not teasing you i'm just you know i think you'll you will delight in me giving you the opportunity to think about it before i give you all the answers how about that right so i'll leave you with that for today think about and find an answer to this question who are you look forward to meeting you next week so we can con- continue the conversation before we conclude then let us take a moment to pass on the merits that we have all acquired today yes merits we talked about this at the start of the talk i'll speak more about that in future talks why it's so important to earn as much merits as we possibly can because it is through our meritorious power that we are able to understand to contemplate to analyze to really comprehend the dharma it is our merit that helps us do that but i want to help you understand this 
one leg, one phase, one step at a time. Throw the logic, the rhyme, the reason behind it. That's why I'm not asking you to jump in all at once. But, you know, over time, I'm sure you will understand all this. But in the meantime, please do, do join me in transferring the merits that we have all acquired to all, to everyone, to each and every one of those people who have helped us to get where we are today and who have worked so incredibly hard to give us the opportunity, to afford us the opportunity to be where we are and to learn the Dharma. Okay, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha, and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Sripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all the other monks resident at this monastery, as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sad, sad, sad. Let us also transfer we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons, daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form, and by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahma, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhu Sasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may through the power of these merits, their prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been our friends and families and acquaintances in this long journey in Sansara, and to those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape, or form they could. 
Let us also transfer many to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations. And may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer many to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them. May to the power of these maids, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants of this blessed land. And may, through the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, Become an Arahat Unnahanse and Arahat in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sad, sad, sad. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to continuing our discussion and hopeful that you might have an answer to the question that I left you with. We leave it for today. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.